0: Well, good morning, everyone. It's April 14th. Welcome to Mornings with Marit. Carrie and I are out on location, so we've got a little bit of different backgrounds to us today, but Gunner's holding down the fort, so thanks, Gunner, for that. <laughs> so, good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining us today. We're not only going to be talking about e but we're also going to be talking about agency management. So, some great tips here, and we have Gunnar Kephart and Carrie Sinewski, obviously, great team members here at IIT, So I'm going to actually have them take a little bit of extra time this morning, um, actually talking through their background and some of their experiences so you get a little bit more insight from them as to what they come from, their background and how that um, specifically relates to the work that they're going to be talking about here. So we're excited to um, showcase them here on Mornings with Marit and I'm going to kick it off by Introducing Carrie. if you can go ahead and give us a little background.
1: Yeah. Good morning. So, you know, I'm looking back over my own career and I laugh a little bit because my start was a little bit tumultuous, you know, how you talk about how did you get into the insurance industry? And it's always some weird way that it happened. Someone stumbled into it. Somebody's friend of a friend asked you, well, my situation is similar. Um, I had been out of college for a couple of years and had jumped around to a bunch of different, you know, just random jobs trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And one of those random jobs was working actually for a two guys. They were a partnership um, and they actually did elevator service. Um, and so my job at that time was to do contracts. I would be the one literally that if someone got stuck in an elevator and they pushed the emergency button, I got to answer that phone call. Um it was kind of stressful in some ways. Um, you have some really interesting stories. Well, one of the guys um had actually grown up as the son of a really large um, nationwide agent, and he had inherited this business and years ago. He he took it over and then sold it um and made a ton of money. And then after doing the elevator company for a little while, he was like, you know what? What was really lucrative is back when I was doing insurance. So he comes over to me and he says, Hey Carrie. I've got this great opportunity for you. Um, how about you get your insurance license? We'll open an agency. I've got the history. I've got the, you know, capital. We'll get it going, and then the, the world is your oyster. You can you can make as much money. You have as much opportunity as you want. So I was like, okay. I mean, sounds good to me. I'm answering emergency calls, so anything sounds better than that. So uh, I go through the process, get my license. I don't know anything about insurance, right? I've but I've gotten the license. So literally, like the very next day, he files the name. We open up shop. So my introduction to insurance was I was an E and O claim waiting to happen. Um, I had to rely on all my broker relationships. You know, I was appointed to getting appointments. I was in charge of everything. The guy was literally just the money behind the scenes, and he could sell anything. Um, so it was a little bit messy. But my role was literally whatever comes in the door, you find a way to place that business. And if somebody calls, we had a really, we'd we'd spend quite a bit of money on the website. So you'd get calls from all over the country. So I was trying to figure out licensing, all the things. And it was just this mad dash. We were a three-person shop. And in reality, it was a one-person shop. And you're looking at the person. (laughs) And so it was crazy. Well, so I'm talking to my brother one day and he's like hey I know that you're just like all over the place are you liking it I'm like I like aspects of it but I just feel like I need some mentoring or some direction or something and so he says hey I know a guy and he works at a large brokerage firm here in town you want to just see if I can set up a coffee for you two, and you guys can connect so I meet up with this guy at the coffee shop and I'm like this is all I'm doing he's like you're doing all of that okay so what you need to do is specialize, right? That's what you hear. Every new producer, this is what you learn. You need to find a specialty. I can help you out with that. We only write insurance agent, E&O, of all things. You just heard my history. Where it was a mess. There I'm it
2: going, is.
1: What even is that? So he explains it to me, and he's like, oh, and by the way, you're obviously a go-getter. I'm going to create a job for you. We're going to put you in this mentoring program and let's see what what you can do. So I transitioned, obviously left the small agency. Um, They pretty much folded within two to three, probably weeks in reality of my leaving, because there was no one else even licensed in the firm to do what I was doing. And I moved over to a national uh, brokerage and they were program manager and they specialized in insurance agent errors and emissions. And so I learned really quickly All the things I had done wrong (laughs) just a couple weeks before um, and then spent a ton of time just deep dives into insurance policies and figuring out what we needed to do and then that's just kind of been a passion of mine because I literally I feel like I've made every mistake you could make Um, and thankfully I was only in that agency for a very short period of time that probably nothing occurred I never heard of a claim but it was an accident waiting to happen so with that as my history, I think it's funny. Um, cause here I am talking about, you know, risk management and how to mitigate risk. And I was the bull in a China shop, you know, <laughs> when I first started. So that's my history. <laughs>
0: right. Well, and, and you all probably don't know this. And I think it's a little hilarious that you're helping us with risk management when you're somebody who's happily jumps out of planes. So, you know, <laughs> I don't know about how I feel about that exactly, but definitely, have a different personality in the office. So thank you for that. So Gunnar, we'll pass it over to you to have you give a little bit of background and then I'm going to pop off the screen and let you guys take it from here and then I'll check back in near the end and, um, we'll wrap up then.
2: That sounds good. Well, like Carrie, I've probably made every mistake and committed every error there ever has been, but, um, luckily none of them ever, Ended up with a E and O claim that I know of. Um, I was one of the fortunate ones that had a dad in the agency business, and uh, after I uh, after several years of, of coaxing, he finally said, "Stop all this other stuff you're doing and come come be in the agency with me." And so that that's how I got my start. And my career encompasses a lot of years, so I'm a go fast after that I, I was a partner in a in a cluster. I was the managing partner of a cluster for several years and left that to seek my fortune in a bigger city which was DFW um, and bounced around several agencies most of it in the beginning there were brokers like HRH which became Willis and then Aon and couple of others and uh, finally settled in a a construction agency in Fort Worth that wrote larger middle market uh, construction accounts and uh, uh, implemented, put together a, a wrap up for a big construction project at DFW airport that took a couple of years. So, bought an agency, sold an agency, um after that and uh eventually ended up at iit so i've seen the good and the bad of the agency business and am committed to uh, helping pay things forward all the people who have helped me during my career i'm attempting to to pay back via the iit Uh, and so that that brings me to an observation that Carrie and I share, and that's the basis of our talk today, and that is um, we both have served, we we do like six or seven hundred ENO renewals every year, and have done that for several years. And so we see um, maybe a thousand EO applications in a year, and those give us a a pretty good feeling for uh, the agency business and their ENO risk management program. And our general observation, which may be obvious, is that ENO risk management and agency performance go hand in hand. A good, strong ENO risk management program uh, is almost always reflected by uh, a good healthy agency and Carrie can talk about what makes um a healthy ENO risk management program then we'll look at a healthy agency what do you say Yeah, i
1: was thinking um just as a quick overview you know when we have these kinds of conversations it's we really want to highlight some elements uh, that we see that are recurring and that might help with some standardization within agencies um, that we've seen have helped mitigate risk over time, so we want to talk through some of those. Um, but a real obvious one, it may seem obvious, that a strong e um, program often means that the agency itself has a great loss history. You know, you've either had uh, really low incidents um, that have actually turned into claims, um, so your ratio was low, or there's those of you out there that knock on wood, continue to stand without any um, actual claims coming to pass. So Gunnar and I know firsthand, you know, it's, it's normally not if a claim is going to occur, but when. Because there's people out there that wh- whether you do everything right, they may say, well, you, you didn't do right by me. Um, and that can just be like a personality conflict, as easy as that sometimes. Um, but so yeah. some of the things that we've learned over time and that we see is obviously just if you have a low, um, you know, and a really strong uh, loss history, then obviously you're on the right track. Um, and then that often means that there's a lower average number of reported incidents. One thing I would just want to make sure that's clear is Gunnar and I both are of the same mindset, um, which is similar to what Swiss Re, which is one of our exclusive markets, holds, is that Um, we encourage folks to turn in any type of potential incident. Um, Don't wait till you're served if you feel like there's kind of a weird situation in the mix. Uh, So I don't want you to misread that by saying that just because you have a lower than average number of incidents, that we're encouraging you not to report those incidents, we of course would want you to. So that way that if it does turn into something, your carrier is involved as early as possible to help mitigate that um, and help you through that. So I just wanted to make sure I clarified that with that point. But another um, element is that there's clearly some internal controls and some standardization in place. Um, And that means that that helps just to minimize the risk in general, mistakes by employees, if they kind of know, hey, this is how we always handle this particular part of the process. Um, And that could include anything from the standardization of how quickly you have turnaround times and expectations for things to get back to your insurers. For an example, if we get a certificate request at maximum, it's 24-hour turnaround time because we know how important those are. So you probably have something similar in your own agency where you know, hey, if we get this kind of request, standard turnaround time is this, and that's when we know we've done a good job for our for our clients. So if as long as you've got folks who know that and their standardization and they have those specific terms in place, you're probably on the right track.
2: And you, you know, Carrie, I'm interrupting. I'm sitting here thinking we can... We can kind of tell what internal controls are in place by the way there are like 16 or 18 questions on the ENO application that specifically uh, point towards agency procedures, and we can tell how those questions are answered or not answered. That gives us an early indication of what kind of internal controls they have that you've been speaking of. Sorry for mm-hmm. interrupting.
1: No, you're absolutely right. And that those key questions on the app are what the underwriter often looks to as well to see if there are certain credits that can be applied to your agency's premium, you know, premium. So, it's yeah. a, they look at it as a valuable aspect too. Good point, Gunnar.
2: Yeah. yeah, good point. So, uh, a healthy agency, will start with, and I have just a very, very um, short story, uh, and it it happened just a couple of days ago. Uh, a very prominent uh, Eno defense attorney called me, and we were reminiscing about his career, of which 40 years or so, and we came to some specific uh, agencies here in Texas that he has been involved with, uh, either as a counselor or defense uh, defending them. And he made the remark. He said, "You know." for an agency that size with all of the uh, huge exposures uh, they have, I have seen very, very few claims. And he said, you know, I I, kind of wonder why that is. And in my mind, I'm I'm answering that question. Well, I know why it is because they have such strong controls. They have such a, a strong standardizing, standardized operating procedure, I know the agency operations chief and she is tough. Well that's that's reflected in a healthy agency. This agency happens to have remarkable growth, remarkable profitability and um, when we talk about acceptable employee turnover, um, we don't mean zero. Uh, there, people's careers take different um, paths sometimes when they're in the agency business. I'm taking, talking primarily about staff. And um, so there needs to be some turnover just uh, as a natural consequence. If we see a, uh, an agency that has absolutely no turnover, I suspect that that's gonna go hand in hand with not much growth, perhaps. Just an indicator and then the obvious other thing is um, very high uh, employee turnover and again that's a question on the ENO app believe it or not very high uh, employee turnover uh, indicates problems and is a unhealthy indicator now we'll get to the more granular part of our discussion today and I'm going to ask Carrie, if you want to talk about the procedures manual, since you personally have created one, 400 and some pages, which I refer to every single day.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, perfect intro. So for anyone on the call that has had the privilege and honor of documenting your processes, um, and that includes you know, the screenshots to, um, just setting up those turnaround times, the operations and documentation—that is not something that I actually enjoy to do. So it was a huge feat for me, and thankfully I was not alone. There was a few other people on our team that were helpful um, in making that happen. When I when I first came to IIAT, um, that was one of the first things that we did because we just knew that as we scaled up in growth, we would need some type of baseline for anyone else that we brought on to the team to refer to and same as any agency out there, you are logging in and out of multiple carrier portals a day. Each of them have a slightly different system that you're working in, um, all the way to how we invoice in our AMS system, um, to what kind of applications we need, from where do you get them, we're pulling loss runs from multiple sites. I mean, there's a lot of times when, you know, you sit down and you've got How many tabs open in a day, seven or eight, and you're in all of them, in and out of them all day long. And so we knew that for a new person, that would be very overwhelming if you're trying to explain to them, hey, you need to go here and log in this way to get this type of information. And then, oh wait, to set that submission up, you actually need to add these three items, which you're gonna find in this completely different location. So for me, it started out as just a really, we needed a clear baseline for folks to start with. Um, and with that, you know, you're creating that procedure manual. So it was a very labor-intensive process. It seemed to take forever; like we could never ever get through it. Um, and then all of a sudden, you you kind of are, and it feels amazing. And it's used now for not only obviously just keeping us on track for what to do, including those random elements that Gunner's referring to, where hey, I'm I rarely see this situation. How does this carrier handle that situation and what do I need to supply them because we've got underwriting authority as well so some of those things are also in the procedure manual Um, and it just it really helps keep us all on track as far as to what's expected in what time is it expected and then also just this how to do Um, and another benefit of that is that with it obviously as you're bringing out new people or if you just have someone that's out of the office that doesn't normally do those tasks, they have something to reference. It's not like a completely blank slate. Nobody really likes to be thrown into the deep end over and over again. And a procedure manual can help you kind of stay in the shallow end of the pool and kind of work your way around and know how to get out of a a problem or situation. Um, And then it also, to that end, just kind of creates staff redundancy. So you don't only have, um, you're not stuck with just one person knowing how to do everything you're spreading the wealth and you're also giving opportunity for folks who maybe are um at a one level in the agency that want to move up to a different one you're giving them kind of those touch points to know what to do um and then obviously you're knowing the procedure manual for us also works for particularly when we're onboarding a new staff member you know these are the milestones we want you to have achieved and here's the one of the resource tools you're going to use Um, And so we do a 65 day check-in actually, and then a 90 day um, when we start with a new person and we refer to that procedure manual as to what parts and pieces they should know by what time um, as part of our review process. So we use it not only as just, hey, this is how you do the day to day, but it is actually a a training tool and then it's accountability tool as well, because if we're all expected to do the same thing the same way um, as much as we can, there's always variation. Um, it, it just helps with all of that. So, it's so a very got, important piece.
2: Yeah, it is, and I've got that, two two examples of that actually. And I want to tie it back to profitability, EBITDA or however you measure it. The more standardized you are in, um, in each of your transactions, internal transactions or transactions with clients, the more standardization you can achieve, the more profitable you are because it takes the variability out of um, your agency processes. You do things every every day the same way. Every staff member does things the same way. All of a sudden, they can handle more transactions, and the transactions per employee. If you think about it. Um, you're buying their ability to do a transaction, the faster and more accurate uh, they can achieve those transactions means it's higher profitability. So we've got uh, a couple of specific examples. One of them is the use of uh, templates. Instead of having to draft the same message over, and this may be obvious, I may be speaking to the choir, but. I'm a. I observe it in real life. Uh, you the use of templates. Some people use signatures in Outlook. Um, other use. Other people use templates loaded in the agency management system. We do it both ways here. Instead of drafting a, a, a new document every time you send a policy out or send a certificate or respond to a client, um, if you'll use if your staff uses a template, they can do way more during the day. Emails, transmittal documents uh, are probably two of the most, uh, most used examples. A third item about standardization, and it goes back to the procedures manual, and that is standardized coding in the agency management system. Again, it may seem fundamental or apparent to most of you, But if everything is coded correctly, then um, management, operations people can go in and analyze the transactions, particularly with respect to each staff member and analyze what kind of of, uh, transactions they're doing and how many. And sometimes you can identify um, staff people that are carrying the load and maybe some that have the ability to do more transactions, and you can allocate agency resources correctly, and that results in better profitability. So, you know, I guess the question, how many endorsements were done by a specific staff member or for a specific client? And if you can quantify that, you've taken a big step um, towards improving your profitability.
1: You know, and Gunnar, I'm going to add into that, that as you, as you have access to that information and the coding helps a ton with that, because when you run reports, obviously you're just typing in certain keywords or certain codes um, to kind of get that information. But you can also tell if there's any bottlenecks anywhere. Let's say a certain task is just really, it's taken way more time than it should. Well, that might be an indication that either additional training is needed, or it could be a Maybe it's a technology issue, they just don't have what they need to process that information, or it could be, hey, let's take a second and sit down together and figure out why is this taking so long, you know, help me walk through this process and maybe there's some little tweaks that we can make to help with that or offload that task to someone else um, or spread it out or whatever you need to do. So, it does help to have that standardization because then you can say, oh, here's a problem, we need to get more efficient in because we're we're killing it over here, but when we get to this kind of task, it takes forever. Let's spend some time to figure out why that is and then either create some additional procedures around it, cut it out maybe. Maybe there's another way you can do it entirely. Just that data is really helpful in evaluating what everyone's doing, to your point, and what's productive and what isn't, and how can we get better. So, good tips,
2: yeah. and, and before we talk about documentation, that ties back, and we're going to talk about it more about uh, continuous improvement in the procedures manual but if you discover one of those bottlenecks and you solve the problem then it needs to be uh, you need to circle back and uh, put that change uh, that procedure perhaps in the procedures manual so in the future when you face it you can always go back and say well this this is how it should be done does that
1: make Mm -hmm. sense Yep, absolutely. Yeah. We do that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the I part of the do. procedure manual that's frustrating for you all is just so you know even when you get to the end of the tunnel you're probably going to have to go back into it again. Thankfully it just won't be as dark <laughs> that second time and third time and fourth time when you make those reiterations to keep it current.
2: Yeah, well I, let's talk about documentation for just a little bit. Um, Documentation is the correct documentation is the get-out-of-jail card for e claims. Um, if it's done correctly, it is the most fundamental aspect of good e you know, risk management. And what it boils down to is the agency's ability to prove that a specific action was undertaken in a specific situation. Here's an example a documentation back to the client saying we added the property to your schedule using the values you requested and the coverages you requested here is the form you sent us please inform uh, us immediately if it's uh, incorrect or if we need to discuss further so that Example of documentation basically uh, seeks to clarify um, the communication between the client and the agency and confirm that uh, the agency has taken the steps that the client requested. Mm-hmm. Without clear communication that includes who, what, where, when, why, uh, without without clear communication, then Documentation, correct documentation can't be made. So the fundamental of, of good documentation of is first is clear communication. That in itself is, goes probably ninety percent, eighty or ninety percent to um, the heart of Eno risk management. It Agreed. also yeah. Yeah, Gunner, go I want to
1: just add that just documentation documentation itself is an asset. So if you think about it, how many calls do you get a day? And um, the real question is how much of the conversation from those calls is making it either into your agency management system or a note taken somewhere into the carrier portal. Because um, it's those little like kind of offhanded comments sometimes on the phone that could either lead to additional questions Um, or that's the action item for you as the, you know, the CSR, as the account manager, that the client is telling you what needs to happen, um, and is it being documented? You know, we do so much, whether it's in person or virtually or whatever, um, that the actual note-taking piece sometimes gets missed or forgotten or, you know, scribbled out, or um, so just the documentation itself is a huge asset.
2: Yeah, yeah, because when the E&O claim comes, when 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 the subpoena comes for your records, uh, you want to be sure that uh, you include those notes somehow. They need to be in the agency management system, is where they should be. Um, mm-hmm. But the subpoena is going to uh, say all documents, so theoretically that could include uh, handwritten notes. The famous cocktail napkin note where (laughs) you added a million dollar property to the schedule Uh, those are just examples Um, let's talk about proof of each party's responsibility that so many times um, it's not clear about who's supposed to do what in the interaction with the client and skillful documentation Um, seeks to uh, clarify uh, that the agency has carried out the duties that they normally would be called upon, and if there is a subsequent error made, uh, we want to make sure that it's not the agency that made the error, but the client did. That may sound kind of brutal, but that's the way it is. So, an example would be a communication with the client. Please sign this uninsured motorist rejection form and return to us. You sent it to them, you never got it back, the claim happens, and your defense is gonna be, uh, I told them, I asked them to, they never did. uh, They should have, and therefore, the, the It's not our fault that the claim happened. Another, uh, we see claims about this all the time. Your property coverage may be reduced if the property is vacant. Please notify us in the event the property becomes vacant. It's not gonna happen, but at least you told them and you put the the responsibility on the client to tell you if the property is vacant. Another example is with carriers. Uh, we see, you know, claims arise out of situations where the agency has ordered a specific coverage or a change to coverage uh, from a carrier, and somehow that change never occurs. The claim, the underlying property claim or liability claim, happens, and it's not covered. Most agencies I think would use a form adding equipment to a schedule that it include all of the information the values and the ID numbers and everything it makes needs to uh, make it possible for the carrier to issue that endorsement uh, information that's left off uh, an underwriting request which delays it is an E&O exposure um, another example is where we use electronic applications on a carrier portal um, and we never get the, the client to sign off on what we order. The way to do that is print out the application, have the client uh, go through it and sign it to attest that it's correct and those are the coverages and values they want. Otherwise, all we have is input from the agency into the carrier and Um, no, uh, confirmation from the client. Carrie? Yeah, Gunnar,
1: I'm going to, I want to add to that just for a second. And some of the things, um, that even I do when I'm in that situation, you know, there's always that disclaimer and it's normally on the carrier site. If you have a really good wholesaler or broker, they're going to put it on their own email that says basically the underwriter has the right to change terms based on updated information. That's the long and short of it. And you want something similar to that when you send something to your client, especially if it didn't require a signed application, those darn auto renewals that we both love and hate for different reasons. Um, but you want something that's saying, please reconfirm this is your intention or um, a statement that just says, "You know, by signing and dating this, you're confirming that the information presented is correct. You're kind of restating that warranty statement in your email um, for that very reason, that if they, for some reason say, oops, I forgot to update line five, which is their liquor receipts, which is a huge difference from one year to the next, um, you've got it in there that says, oh, but you said right here that this was current, accurate, and correct.
2: Yeah, that's a a great point. Um, This is kind of a, a little bit of different touchy-feely kind of thing about documentation, but I think it's important, and we're going to talk about a shared value in a minute, but um, in communicating internally um, with the staff, with the agency, the producers, service people, uh, the administrative people, um, shared values have to be communicated over and over and over in order to become ingrained or, or cultural in a in an organization and it's not just enough to say it in meetings um, it's important to document it because people go back and refer to those kind of discussions and lots of times it takes the place of stories uh, Mara uh, sometimes uses uh, the example of world-class service in, in Ritz-Carlton hotels where the staff is empowered to do whatever it takes to make the, the guests uh feel welcome. And um they have these internal stories that circulate about this particular situation happened, this staff member responded correctly, and here's the result that uh, the client became a platinum uh, client or whatever. Um, One of the specific examples in my background is that when I worked for a big broker, um, when in our monthly meetings, uh, there'd be stories about service teams that went above and beyond uh, necessity in order to write a new account or to retain an account, and it's like they got an app in and had 24 hours to place it, and they all worked all night long to get it placed and make the new client happy and all that kind of stuff. That took place verbally in in the uh, meetings, but it also was part of a monthly newsletter that documented that story and. Repetitiously, you start feeling like, hey, that's the way we're we're supposed to behave. The story is great, but it needs to be documented and repeated in order to become cultural. That's my point. (laughs) That
1: was a good point, (laughs) Gutter. So one thing that we talk about a ton at IIAT, and you will hear this probably from every staff member uh, and it doesn't matter what department we sit in, what seat we sit in, is yeah. the idea of continuous improvement. Um, and so that speaks to how well we as an organization understand the need to always be looking for ways that we can better meet the needs of our members. And that's everything from how do we become more efficient in our procedures and processes, to what's the best way to document, which we've talked about a little bit, what are since Things we can use the templates, the email signatures that are repetitive tasks. Um, but obviously, we want to we want to continually be getting better. So, Gunnar, let's talk a little bit about what that continuous improvement lifestyle um, looks and feels like.
2: Well, it, you know, it really uh, we're getting down to basics in, in some ways, and um, for an agency or any kind of organization. Um You have to be open and transparent in your attitudes with everybody that's involved. if 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 it's a shared value, if continuous improvement is a shared value, then it presupposes um, certain elements of undertaking, whatever your whatever your goals are are not as good as they could be. And that you commit yourself to finding the um, areas that need improvement um, and work on them together. Um, you know, one of the one of the challenges we face right now as agents is cyber coverage and the way uh, coverage is being reduced. Prices are going up. Um, It's almost like we're drowning in this chaotic uh, marketplace that generates an E&O exposure for an agency who's right in cyber coverage. And if they do not adapt to the changes in the cyber marketplace and improve their coverage offerings to the client, then uh, they're exposed to to an E&O. An example is that, the disappearance of social engineering coverage or fraudulent funds transfer. uh, We're seeing that right now. Uh, Some renewals don't offer it. That's an opportunity and that's a challenge. But each team member, to be specific, who deals with cyber um, needs to feel uh, trust and support so they can communicate with each other um, to meet the needs of the client uh maintain that whatever coverages are needed by them so that's kind of a specific thing about continuous improvement being imposed by the outside by a changing marketplace but um staff member in this particular instance what i see is we sit down and we talk about the coverages we talk about the markets and we talk about our clients and we formulate a game plan to um improve um uh, our response to the to the changing uh marketplace. Mm-hmm. You may have another example too, Carrie.
0: I, I might yeah. jump in too if you guys don't mind. Um, yeah. I mean I saw continuous improvement, so I had to come back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, you uh, you brought it to us. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so it, it and so one of the things that I, I think is probably a challenge, which I'd like to maybe hear about is, you know, culture is all about a team having shared values. Um, You know, I almost think about having those opportunities for spring cleaning and your, you know, process improvements, those kinds of things. But I imagine with people working remote more and more and having hybrid work environments, it takes longer to identify mistakes and you're not overhearing each other and learning from each other on a day-to-day, because um, I think in an office environment, you'll hear each other talk to your point, Gunner, about like cyber. Oh, I heard about this. There's an, op, you know, there's a water cooler conversation and information passes so quickly just by osmosis. Um, what are you seeing? And what do you recommend to make sure that those, those moments get captured for continuous learning on a team when you have to be, I think, even more purposeful than ever to translate lessons learned throughout the day that you might not even be aware of. Mm-hmm.
2: I, I can respond to that. Um, number one, and, and it's, it, it goes to carry. number one, we have uh, at least an hour every week of kind of unscripted, we call it ENO and catch up or something, where we all, meet in a zoom meeting and it's two or three items four or five items whatever and then just open discussion and um questions from clients are really important uh potential claims are really important and we encourage that discussion um on a regular basis but there's another point and that is and it kind of irritated me to be honest with you because of the (laughs) tone that comes on when Teams, there, there needs to be other uh, channels of communication. And there are a couple of us that if we have a question, just hit the Teams button and ask somebody um, instantaneously, or pick up the phone and, and uh, call. And I think that's not quite perfect, but it helps fill in the gaps from not seeing each other
1: hmm I'd, I'd add to that, Marit, that if we know, for example, cyber, and last year it was employment practices liability coverage that was being non renewed and we had to move, we set it up to say, hey, this is going to be ambiguous for a little while because we have some teammates that need really structured responses and to know exactly what they're supposed to do, and you can't sometimes. So we would just say, hey, this is going to be ambiguous, which is why we just need to stay in communication about it until it becomes clear. So sometimes that's just what it is. And so there's phone calls and to Gunner's point, random team meetings where we say, hey, let's actually take a second, get updated. Who's doing what on this? What have you heard? What have you're seeing? So that we can kind of keep everybody going the same direction while we're still trying to figure it out. I think you make a
0: good point with that, which I'd encourage agencies. There's a lot of times that people are just heads down doing their work or when we meet, it's just about what's happening with a renewal or a new business and where's the placement, but to really take time in those meetings to say, what did people get stuck on this week? What what questions were you asked that we're not aware of? What weird quirk occurred that we could learn from each other, right? As opposed to um, just tackling it yourself and not sharing it overall. Good. Well, I want to thank you guys. Um, Lots of great content here. And of course, this is recorded. So folks want to have their staff follow it as well. That's great. And actually at our InsureCon conference in June, um, we actually have you all doing a little bit more of a blowout on that, which I know we'll have a slide here in a second. Sorry, Matt, I'm completely out of order, which I know you're all shocked by. So please go ahead and check out our InsureCon schedule. We've got a ton of programming there for, you know, professional development and networking and golf and activities, and just get everybody back together. If you want to go back a slide, sorry. Um, The next mornings with Marit in May, I'm going to have our friend, Paul Buse, who is a past IIABA um, vice president. He's actually going to be interpreting trends in the Texas PNC marketplace. So hopefully you'll join us for that. I think there'll be a lot of good content there that you can be aware of in maneuvering through things in the coming year. There's a lot of changes going on. I think we want to be aware of that um, and how that's going to impact the market rate, all of those different things from a standpoint of your activities and so forth. So with that, I'm going to see what the next slide is because I do not remember. So we'll move to the next one. There you go. Okay. So, we do, if you're interested, starting on Monday, I'm running an eight-week series. Um, this is actually, we're calling it Power of the Paperback. It's taking some of my favorite books. Um, but this, the one we're going to do in the first book is first break all the rules. Imagine that you basically get a one-hour coaching session every week for eight weeks um, with a small group of people to walk through material, um, do homework, do assignments, apply the concepts and so forth. Um, it's going to be meaty. Um, it's over two months. I always do these things over time because then what happens is you actually change your behavior as you go through two months, as opposed to power reading a book and hopefully you grab one or two concepts. So hopefully you'll join us for that and go ahead and um, check it out on our website and the link is there. And with that, I want to thank everybody for their time today. Hopefully it's a great week. You can follow us on our Facebook page and Gunner. Carrie, thank you so much for your time and attention and what you do to take care of our agents. Um, it's one of the most important things we do. You guys have a great day. Bye guys.
1: Bye.